0: That was beautiful. Good morning. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the first house you ever lived in? We were talking, I was talking to Dennis, I think it was, before the service. We are talking about, we've actually lived in the same apartment complex many years apart. He lived in Bakersfield and we used to live in Bakersfield. And that was kind of, how many years apart? Two years apart was it? Yeah, I think that's what it was. But uh, how, how old are you? 30? Yeah, you were alive then. (laughs) My earliest memory is standing in my crib in a little town called Columbus, Texas, and looking out a window that was by my crib. I think I was 17. No, I was like one or two. Uh, And back then, as you looked out that window, the house, the yard, and all that seemed like really the whole world, right? Right? I mean, this is everything. As I got a little older, then you realize there's there's more places, and the world's a big place. And you, you, when you're young and you get a little bit older, the neighborhood's certainly the thing, and that seems like the whole world. And um, if you went outside and saw somebody you didn't know, you'd hide behind Daddy and Mommy, right? Um, then you realize there are more than just one neighborhood. There are multiple neighborhoods, and there's even a city and a state and a country, and then eventually even a whole world that's out there. and And... The, the information that I gather from that is that our perspectives can be really, really small, right? Uh, have you ever heard of Edwin Hubble? You probably have, right? The telescope guy, the Hubble telescope? He was born in 1889 in Missouri, and in 1919, he moved to L.A., and uh, he moved up to what is now the Mount, I guess it was then, too, the Mount Wilson Observatory up there north uh, of Pasadena, which is a cool place. But when Hubble moved there, Science thought that the whole universe consisted of one galaxy, and that was, of course, our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. But as a result of Hubble's work, they began to realize that there's, you know, not just one galaxy, but there's all kinds of galaxies. A lot of those little spots of light that you see out there are actually whole galaxies by themselves. Now, astronomers figure there are probably about 140 billion galaxies, and that's an ever-growing number. I don't know how big $140 billion is. Do you? I mean, I try to figure it out. I try to take these numbers and try to say, okay, what can this mean to me? So if you went down to the Staples Center, right, downtown LA, and you were to buy, before you went there, a bag of frozen peas, you know what I'm talking about? The little peas, right? Frozen peas. If you were to take... Well, you'd have to buy more than a bag to do what I'm going to do. But you you take frozen peas down to the Staples Center, and you begin to open the bags and dump them on the floor, center court there in Staples Center, and begin to fill the place up. When you are finished filling it up, you're getting pretty close to 140 billion peas in the Staples Center. It's a, it's a pretty amazing thing when you think of a place that you can recognize like that and an object that's that small, and think about there are 140 billion galaxies, each one of them similar or larger even than ours. And like a one-year-old looking out of his crib, when Hubble went here to California, they thought that's how big the universe was, just that one, and then you see it's bigger and bigger, and by the time, every time they build a new telescope, it's like, whoa, there's more, because humans are limited by perspective. Our worldviews, if we're not careful, they change like the wind, Ideas and trends come and go like the tide, and because man has a limited vision of life and the world, there's constant change in each man's philosophy. There is one philosophy that never changes, right? There is one place, one anchor that, that always holds, and that is, of course, uh, the Word of God, and, and specifically Christ Jesus, right? Right? He is, the Bible tells us, the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13, verse 8. And, and what I want to talk about is, is combating, really, these two philosophies, these two different worldviews. I want to talk about uh, choosing between Christ, the, the, the same, the true, the consistent, and the world, which is ever-changing, and their philosophies. And I want to take you to our passage. You've got your Bibles, I'm sure. Open them up to Colossians chapter 2. And there we're going to see Paul contrast really the futility of this worldly philosophy that's ever-changing with the vitality of Christianity, which is rooted in the Word of God and in Christ. And this is something even you might be thinking, well, yeah, I get the Bible and all that kind of stuff. This is something that you really have to be aware of as a believer as well, because even within evangelical or Christian circles, there is a whole lot of change that's always going on. And people, it's easy for man because we, we are so horizontally focused to drift away to uh, integrate, really, worldly philosophies into our thinking. You're all familiar with Fuller Seminary up in Pasadena. Fuller Seminary was founded with one, really, idea in mind, and that was to provide a conservative biblical training ground because many of the denominational uh, philosophies and uh, Seminaries had embraced liberalism and had abandoned uh, the faith, really, on issues like inerrancy and uh, the virgin birth, uh, the deity of Christ, all these kind of things. Seminaries were moving away from that. And as seminaries moved away from that, guess what happens to churches, right, when these guys start getting up and preaching? So Fuller's, they decided, we really want to fight that. And within a few decades, uh, they did that for a while, but within a few decades, really, they capitulated on the idea of biblical inerrancy so the word of god we we can't count on it it's not true necessarily not all of it anyway why did they do that well in his book uh, reforming fundamentalism george Martinson does a little history about it and he notes that many of fuller's founders and faculty were obsessed with this notion of, of intellectual and academic respectability so they wanted to be respected by the academic communities and unfortunately what happens is most of the academic community, communities, the intellectual climate is almost unanimously sympathetic to skepticism, right? To liberalism and humanism, which is a direct conflict to the word of God. And so the very community from which the fuller leaders sought to win acceptance was really a community that was at war with the theology that is in the word of God as a result, in order to gain the status that they so desperately desired, they compromised. And the history of the school is one really of sad doctrinal decline. That's the danger that we all face. Churches shift from conservative to liberalism often. Schools shift the same way. Individual Christians shift as well. And in Paul's day, the story was no different. Uh, As he looks at the church of Colossae, he he realizes that there is this issue coming in where various things are being put in front of these people to try to get them to drift away from the truth that they know. False teachers were coming in and they were saying, you know, Jesus Christ is not enough. You need something in addition to Christ or something in substitution to Christ, And that's Satan's favorite modus operandi. He hasn't really had an original thought since the Garden of Eden. And the same things that the first century church here encounters, we encounter today. And the beauty, folks, is this. The New Testament answers it all. It's all right here. So we can go back to something written 2,000 years ago and gain uh, information that is helpful for us to fight the same battles. Here in Colossians chapter 2 Paul is dealing with really four substitutions which are often proposed or additions that are proposed to Christ. He'll talk about legalism, which is adding a bunch of rules. Mysticism, which is really the idea of a a higher spiritual plane and added revelation. Aestheticism, which is basically pouring yourself to Christ. And then intellectualism, which is uh, integrating human philosophies. And all these heresies fall into the ones that that Paul is dealing with, and we see them today. And, And the one we're going to look at today is intellectualism, okay? Intellectualism is a substitution for or an addition to Christ. Now, what I mean by intellectualism, I mean that my mind becomes the determining agent for truth. Did you track with me on that? My mind becomes the determining agent for truth. Truth is not necessarily from God, and his word is not necessarily revealed absolute truth. Rather, truth is what I, by my own rational uh, definition, is. That, that's what I decided to be. That's truth. And that's why you can have people say, well, if that works for you, that's good. That's your truth. You ever heard that? This shows up in the church. It shows up outside the church. In the church, it's called liberalism, Okay. Uh, You see it in a lot of church growth methodology, things like that. Uh, You see it in in theology that says things like uh, six-day creation. That can't possibly be true, right? How in the world could God create in six days like the Bible says? There must be something else because what I'm hearing from the scientific community is everything else is against that. Can I just say to you real quick, there is nothing in the scientific record. This is clear, okay, I hope to you. Nothing that contradicts creationism. Not one shred of evidence. Not one. Nothing. Oh, you hear about it. You hear, well, this is 10, you go to the museum, right? This is 10 million years old. The man came in and he stood up and, right? But who was there, right? Nobody saw this, right? This is somebody taking a philosophy, applying it to what their their worldview, to what they see around them and trying to make, a godless society. There is nothing that demonstrates scientifically at all that that six-day creation is not true. Nothing. They'll come up with something every now and then. Here's the missing link on page one, right? And then a year later on page 32, if at all, they'll say, oh, by the way, that was a pig's tooth we found in Nebraska. Things like that. But, but we're, we're susceptible to this because we hear that over and over again from grade schools all the way up through our colleges and in the museums and everything else. And we're susceptible to this because it's like, well, that's truth, right? So no, no, nobody with a no thinking man could believe hocus-pocus like a six-day creation, right? So churches begin to become more liberal. It shows up outside the church and self-motivation movement, Right? Positive thinking movement, atheism, agnosticism, positive thinking movement. You know, guys like, uh, well, right up the road here, Robert Schuler was that, right? Uh, more in my neck of the woods, Joel Osteen, guys like that. The emergent church and the self-motivation movement. Now, as I talk about the fact that it, uh, this intellectualism, I want you to understand this, okay? I do not mean that you do not use your intellect in Christianity. All right. I believe that you do not check your brains at the door. Okay. You don't want to be like the fellow who prayed, Lord, I thank you for my ignorance. Please help me make me ignoranter. That was a prayer that was answered before he prayed it, right? No, no, it's very different than that. Uh, Your mind is to be engaged. We talked about that a little bit last week. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ephesians 4, 23 says, You be renewed in the spirit of your, what? Mind. Colossians 3, 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. And Colossians 1, 9. For this reason also, since the day we first heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The mind. Is to be engaged. Many there are many great minds in Christianity, and old Paul here writing this letter was one of them. Right? Intellect is not the God, though. Intellect is to be used in subjection to truth. Okay. We don't have to solve all the tensions, right? I don't have to solve the tension of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God, right? I don't have to solve the tension of I'm saved by grace alone, but I persevere to the end, right? Every great doctrine of theology has a tension, and we go nuts thinking we got to figure it all out and explain it. The reality is we can't explain it. Why? Because God's mind is bigger than ours. So what we do is we submit ourselves to the Word of God. If I think A, and the Word of God says B, guess what I'm supposed to be thinking? A, right? Tomorrow on the news, they could come out with videotape evidence of evolution, and I wouldn't believe it. You say, well, you're a blind knucklehead. No, because you know what? A year down the road, they're gonna say, yeah, this was made in some guy's garage, right? I know this is truth more than even what I see or hear. And again, can I say to you, there is no evidence that contradicts that Period. I love it because they have things, you know, bristlecone pines, you know, up in uh, the Sierra Nevada. You can go up there and they've got these old trees that go back forever. How far do the rings go when they count them all? They go back to a young earth age. That's as far as they can go. Nothing goes past that. It's a worldview. So what Paul does here is he warns against using the world's philosophy. And that's what we're going to look at here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Follow along as I read. See to it. "...that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority." So Paul begins here in, in this contrast, and he starts off by talking about, and this is the blank on your outline, the futility of the world's philosophy. It's futile. The futility of the world's philosophy. He starts off, look at verse eight, and he says see to it. And in the Greek, this is a warning that is a, a rare structure. And, and it really, the, the intention of it is to, to, to make danger and, and to make a warning more uh, urgent and more imminent. It's used in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 in a stern warning given against having an evil, unbelieving heart. Make sure you don't have that, right? And here the warning is against what? Look at it. It's against philosophy and empty deception. And in the Greek, they use a single article and preposition that suggests this, that this is not two things, philosophy, A, and empty deception, B, but they are one thing together. They're one entity, i.e. I, 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 the idea of a philosophy which is empty deception, okay, or hollow and deceptive philosophies. And this is a warning against worldly thinking. One commentator said evangelicals historically have understood their calling to be in the world but not of the world. He points out that many Christians have reversed that formula, becoming of the world while not in the world. We became of the world by what we're reading and taking in from the TV, entertainment, different things like that. And then we infuse the world's values into our thinking if we're not careful. And at the same time, try isolating ourselves into small groups that don't really have any interaction with real people in the real world. And that's an example of accepting the world's philosophy, which is futile. Worldly philosophy seeks to find the answers to the great questions of life apart from God, apart from uh, the Bible, apart from Jesus Christ. They have no room for those three things. In fact, they'll get angry if you start talking about them. And and, you know, somebody once said there's three basic questions, right, that every person is trying to figure out, regardless of philosophy. And the first one is the question of human dignity: Where did I come from? The second one is the question of human duty, why am I here? And the third one is the question of human destiny, where am I going? right? And the world's answers on these are all wrong and they're all deceitful on every one of those questions. And Paul says the worldly answers to these questions are empty deception. They're like, if you go into one of the movie studios, like go take the universal tram tour, you see all these buildings, you're like, well, oh, I'm in a, you know, a city somewhere. And then you round the corner and all is just a facade, right? Just a nicely painted thing that looks like a building, but it's only three feet deep. That's, that's the, similar to the pagan philosophy that confuses the mind and makes it think that there is some substance there when there is not substance there. Paul says, see to it that this type of philosophy does not take you captive. Word captive there is the idea of doesn't kidnap you, doesn't carry you off like in the spoils of war. By the way, this, this, and I think that's a very intentional word there, right? Take you captive because that's the way they work. You know when the best time to have a Jehovah's Witness visit you at your doorstep is? Right now. Because believers, Christians should be where? Gathering together on Lord's Day, right? So the weak ones are not. Or the ones who aren't are not, right? So they go around and they pray on them like that to try to take them captive, to kidnap them. That's the absolutely best time. If, and if you think about that, whenever you're leaving yourself open to those kind of situations, you're, you're, you're really just saying, you know, open the door and let this kind of worldly philosophy into my life. I mean, think of David. Remember David uh, when he was, uh, it, it starts off with uh, 2 Samuel 12? Sa- it says, at the times when kings go out to war, David got up in the afternoon to walk on his roof. All right? So David was a king. He was supposed to be out in the battle where the rest of the troops were, but he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And late in the day, he gets up, and he he goes out on the roof to check things out. And you remember the story that he looks down, he sees Bathsheba, and let the problems begin. And his life was never the same after that and that 's a warning, I think a, a picture as it were, and this is what paul 's trying to say here is don 't get yourself in any position that 's going to cause compromise don 't put yourself in a position where you 're going to uh, fall prey in this case to worldly, empty, deceptive philosophies. We allow ourselves to be easy prey in this philosophy department when when we, when we let our pride run things, right? Because we want to, it appeals to us at the pride level. I want to be respected in the way I think. I don't want people to think I'm just a closed-minded Christian, you know? So I want people to think, yeah, I'll listen and I understand your arguments and yeah, there's some truth to that and, and pretty soon you're just taken captive. We all want to feel smart. That's where theistic evolution comes from, right? Well, I love my Lord, and I want to be thought of as smart, so why couldn't God use evolution to create everything, even though the Bible says something totally different than that? That's pagan philosophy. It's futile, and our, our passage tells us several reasons it's futile. The first one is, you see in the middle of verse 8, it's futile because it's of man. Man. See to it that no one takes you captive through, empty, through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. It follows those kind of traditions. You know, there's no new thoughts since Socrates or Plato or Aristotle or any of those guys. What happens is we just continue to refine previous thoughts and maybe put new terminology with them. Evolution, for example, was not started by Charles Darwin. I hope you understand that, right? Uh, and it's not a scientific matter. It is a philosophical matter. It's a philosophy of life. It's the idea of, you know, there is no God, so what's another answer supposed to be? So let me come up with other stuff. It's not new. Darwin didn't originate. it. 2,000 years before him, there was a fellow by the name of Anaximander who believed that life came out of a moist atmosphere. Okay, so it starts with him. And what Darwin does, he writes a book and just kind of popularizes it. And then it happens that a guy by the name of Karl Marx gets a hold of that. And that brought about atheistic atheistic communism. And then a guy by the name of Nietzsche gets his hands on it and bought into it. And it brings about German militarism. And then a guy, the, the scientific community grabs a hold of it. And then you have the theory of evolution kind of pushed forward in its fullness. And then some religious people get a hold of it. And you got theistic evolution. It's people coming up and being kept, being taken captive, kidnapped by a philosophy that is contradicting the word of God, and that's the way that men think, and it ends up perpetuating error and compounding ignorance. And in the words of Romans chapter one verse twenty-two, professing to be wise, they became fools. So, pagan philosophy is first and foremost of men, and it's futile because of that. Secondly, you'll see in our passage that it's futile because it's of the world. You see that in the middle of verse 8? According to the elementary principles of the world. The Greek word for elementary principles there is, is a word that to describe a series one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D. Uh, it's sometimes used of elementary spirits. Uh, people believe that spirits or the stars or the planets rule the world. And maybe you think that's silly in this modern age and all that, but I wonder how many people check their horoscope daily. It's printed in the paper for a reason, right? The New Age movement, it really just comes all out of that. Right? Do you remember a deal back in 1987? It was, just, it was April 16th and 17th, so just a few days ago, in 1987, called the Harmonic Convergence. Do you remember this? In case you don't, this is a thing where people thought, well, the planets aligned a certain way on those dates. And so that was a time when we can bring harmony and everything into our universe if we all kind of get up on a hill and hum and wear white. And I don't know. I don't get it either. But this happened, it was part of the Mayan calendar, which by the way, if you haven't heard, the world's over now uh, as of last December. That was kicking off the 25 years that came to that date, okay? And 144,000 people were supposed to get up on a hill here in California and at 1111, that was the time, and hold hands and just bring in harmony. How, How do you think that went? Look around on the freeway next time you're driving around doesn't work. Why 144,000? Because they throw in these biblical kind of terminologies just to kind of get the weak, right? And take them captive. It's funny. It's hilarious when you watch it. So if we all, all chant the same thing, if we all get a collective liver quiver going, we'll be in harmony with the universe. No. It's used to that kind of talk. It's also used of elementary principles, the basic building blocks, principal teachings, that kind of stuff. And in our case, in our world it would be natural explanations apart from God would be kind of the elementary principles idea. So when they start asking the questions of where did I come from, the answers are well, you came out of some kind of primordial ooze, right? You you came from a monkey or you know, you you, you came from this this whole kind of natural thing and you're nothing made in the image of God or nothing that's precious to God. Now what does that do to the question of where did I come from as far as the human dignity aspect of it? Immediately, it doesn't really matter, right? Because you're just a, a result of chance. And, and it takes away any accountability to a God, right? Because I can do anything I want to because I just, you know, came out of the mop water. So there are a lot of natural things that flow out of that. Abortion, uh, the human extension movement, because life is no longer precious. You understand? There's no longer any dignity in it because life just comes out of a test tube. Why am I here? Well, there's no purpose in that, is there? I'm a result of chance, so I'm just here because that happened and when the days are over, that's it. They'll put my body in the ground. Where am I going? I'm going into final nothingness, just like I came from final nothingness. And if they get sophisticated, they might reincarnate you and let the process keep going again so that you can come back as a, Chick-fil-A cow or something, right? It's futile, futile thinking, all right? Pagan philosophy is futile because it's of man and it's of the world, but it's especially futile. And you see this at the end of verse eight because it's not of Christ, okay? And this is the essence of the futility. The Bible says there is salvation in no other name given among men by which you must be saved. There is this one called Jesus Christ who, and what they do when they take Christ out of the equation is they take away every and really the only opportunity for a realization of your purpose and understanding why you're here and what you're to be about. Paul tells the Colossians, all of that kind of thinking, folks, is futile. He doesn't just leave it there. But then he does the contrast, okay? And this is where the choice is coming between Christ and the world, is that he turns and he says, there is the futility of this pagan philosophy, but there is something good. There is a vitality, the vitality of Christianity. And that's the second blank on your outline, the vitality of Christianity. That's where he goes to next. And and what he does here is really a no-brainer contrast. I mean, this is a slam dunk. And and I invite you to go to to Acts 17 if you want to see Paul do this in real time on Mars Hill. Because what he does is he goes into the midst of a place where people bought into all kinds of philosophy, so much so that they got idols set up to everything And they got one that just in case they don't know what the other one is, we got one to the unknown God. And he goes in and he basically takes them from this position of a a syncretistic inclusion of everything that they could think of as kind of like covering their bases to the one true God who's the only God and the only source of truth. And the contrast is beautiful because human wisdom, of course, is temporary, but divine wisdom is eternal, Human wisdom is impotent, and divine wisdom is powerful. Human wisdom exalts man, and divine wisdom exalts God. And human wisdom, and you'll notice this, is always for the elite. Look at what I found out. Whereas God's divine wisdom is intended for all. The Christian, Christianity, and this is why it's vital. Christianity finds its basis in God, the Bible, and Christ. Christ. You see, you've got to start at the right point, don't you? It's like buttoning your shirt when you get up in the morning. If you get one button, guys, when you're buttoning up your shirt and you start off wrong, right? It doesn't work out well. You end up with this kind of cockeyed coc- coc- thing going on, right? So you've got to start off right. If you get the first part wrong, in other words, if you start with man's philosophy, you're really not going to get there in any way, shape, or form. You've got to start at God's place by design. That becomes the word of God, given by God, and talking about his Christ. If you start there, that leads to the fullness of Christ. Look at verse 9. In him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I love the word d- dwells there because it's what's called a timeless present, which means it permanently resides. And his lightfoot calls, it says it fixed its abode. So you start off there with Christ's deity, which is in full view here. All the fullness, the completeness, the sum total of who God is, is in Christ. It's an absolute statement of his deity here, and it's heresy, folks, to say he's not God, 100% God. But it also awesome view here is his humanity. He dwelled, look at what it says, in bodily form. He's, he's fully man, too. He's 100% man, he was 100% God. And it's like verse 9 there, the first part of it is where he's talking about his deity is like John 1.1. 1, 1. The word was God, right? And then the next part of it is like John 1.14. The word was flesh. And Jesus is both God and man. And when you see Jesus in Bethlehem in the manger, you see God in the manger. When you see Jesus at 12 at the temple, you see God in the temple. When you see Jesus at Calvary, you see God on the cross. This is the picture that's going on here. Fully God, fully man. He was as much God as if he was not man at all. And he's as much man as if he were not God at all. This is an amazing thing to process. He had an earthly mother and a heavenly father. And on his mother's side, he got thirsty, right? But on his father's side, he was the the living water. Think about that for a minute. On his mother's side, he'd get hungry. But on his father's side, he's the bread of life. On his mother's side, he had no place to lay his head. On his father's side, he's the home for the homeless. I love this. On his mother's side, he, he stood before Lazarus' tomb and he wept. On his father's side, he stands before Lazarus' tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth, right? On his mother's side, he died and was buried. And on his father's side, he rose on the third day. He was human. He was man. He was deity. He was God. All in one. 100% man. 100% God. 100% plus 100% God's math, right? And so Christ's deity and his humanity are in full view here. But also look at verse 10. It says that he's head over all rule and authority. And we've covered that in chapter one already. And we saw that he's the source, the creator, the sustainer of all things. And the idea there is he has authority over all things. And he has real authority. Now this is important, right? Because if I came from that primordial ooze, there's no authority. No one that I should listen to. no, No one who knows the best way I operate. Those kind of things, right? No authority at all. I remember several years ago, I was in Greensburg, Kansas. A tornado had come through and wiped out the whole town. You may have heard of it or remember that from the news. Just wiped the whole town over. So that was about 60 miles from where we lived. So I took a group of folks from our church and we went over there to help clean up. And so we were over there and we were working at this uh, right there on the highway, on one side of the highway. And we all of a sudden you see the Blackhawks and you know, you see all these helicopters coming in and black suburbans and these land the black suburbans go over and get and guys are lining along the street about every fifty yards that look very, very serious, up on high places with big guns and we're like, Hmm, what's going on here? you know, it's something very important's going on. And it turns out that President Bush at the time, he came in and was going to see the damage. So he flew over it, and then they landed, and then they took him and drove him in the, the, the Suburbans down the road to, to see it firsthand, talk to some people, that kind of stuff. Well, he, they, the first place he stops is right across the highway, four-lane highway from where we're at, and I've got the guys from the church here. I said, let's go there and see him." I don't know. And so we start across the road, and the Secret Service guys there are like, nope, you're not going anywhere. And I'm like... Wow. And I look back and Bush is getting out of his car. He looks over and sees us and he goes, and I just told, I looked at the, the secret service guy. I said, you got Trump, dude. <laughs> and then, then we left, right? So the, the, that was authority. I, the secret service with the gun, all that kind of stuff says, you're not supposed to come over here. What's the wise thing to do? Don't go over there until the one with the real authority says, come on. Secret service didn't try to stop us anymore. It's quite interesting. See, Christ has all, all authority, he, he is the rule over all. And, and so Christianity is vital because he is deity, because he is humanity, because he has rule authority over all. And in that, all the great philosophies, qu- all the questions of great, uh, philosophy are answered, right? The question of human dignity, where did I come from? Well, that's a piece of cake if I believe in God, the Bible, and Christ, right? Genesis 127 tells me the answer to that. God created man in his own image. Boom. A nine-year-old in Sunday school knows that, Right? The question of human duty, why am I here? Simple, Christianity tells us that, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that's simple. The question of human destiny, where am I going? That's an easy one, well, we got heaven again and hell to lose, right? I mean, we got a life to live that way. The gospel is amazing and it's so simple that a young child, a little boy or a little girl can understand it, but it's so profound that you can take an eternity to try to unravel its riches. And the beauty of Christianity and the gospel is it has a complete Christ that leads to a complete believer right? This is not just merely a, a, a philosophies that you're going uh, A or B, but it's more than that. It is, it is a life choice that's going on there that is determinant of where you end up and what happens. You say, well, God predestined. Yes, he did. And man's responsible for his choices. So let's not get into that discussion because both of them are equally true in scripture, right? And I won't be able to clear that up for you completely, But I can tell you this, God calls me to renew my mind. He's doing the work behind all that anyway, right? And so as he does that, I'm able to, he opens my eyes, he draws me to himself. So all those things are going on. But then as I'm living the Christian life, is it possible for a Christian to sin? Go ahead, give me this. For three of you in here, it's possible for you to sin. The rest, not at all. No, no, right? So something's going on there where we are choosing. God is not saying, I preordain you to sin right now. He is giving us an opportunity, right? to make decisions that glorify him or to learn the hard way about his discipline within the guardrails of the highway that he puts us on as believers. So as we look at our philosophies, we have to be careful that we are still making good choices and having our mind renewed by his word, right? Because that is the pathway that the designer has put us on that is the best place for us to walk. That is the pathway in Old Testament terminology of blessings, not curses. So look at verse 10. In him it says, you have been made, I love that verb, complete. Okay? The same word as fullness, verse 9, that word complete there. So why do we want to add anything else if we're complete? Think about that. We are complete, the word of God says we are. Why are we constantly trying to bring other things into the equation? It doesn't make any sense at all because we are complete in Christ Jesus. We have all that we need. We need to learn to appropriate it in our daily situations and we need to grow in our knowledge of who he is because of the knowledge that's there. That's, that's, I believe, one of the reasons why we have so many whiny Christians, right? I mean, what is the deal with Christians walking around like they're just like, this is the worst thing on earth? Christianity is awesome, folks. We serve a great God, don't we? I saw it coming out. As we get older, it's harder. I know, it's just started to kind of get good. Yes, we serve a great God. I mean, there are hardships, there is persecution, there's all that, and, and that's part of the equation, but there is also joy, right? There is also peace, right? There is a greatness of a relationship with the God who spoke things into existence, you know? And we need not do one or the other outside its, its balance. In other words, we don't wanna be so <laughs> giddy about our Christianity that we pretend like we're, there's never hard times. We pretend like there's never uh, persecution and things like that. The word of God clearly tells us there is. But at the same time, we need not focus only on that and to the extent that we make God small true there was a gal who wrote a hymn i put the words on my phone i'm not making i'm not making a call um oh text message no um e margaret clarkson was her name she wrote a hymn It was called so send i you you ever heard this one any old timers this was a missionary hymn man when they were sending out missionaries this was the hymn they they sent out so let me just read a few verses of it to you so send i you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unloved, unsought, unknown. I mean, it's getting bad, right? To bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing, so send I you to toil for me alone. So send I you to loneliness and longing, with a heart a hungering for the loved and known, forsaking kin and kindred, friend and dear one, so send I you to know my love alone. Okay, let me ask you a question. Sometimes ministry's like that, right? Sometimes our life's like that. That's true. I don't have a problem with that. If, unless that's the whole focus. This gal uh, realized later on that that hymn had focused too much on one area and not enough on the other. So she rewrote it. Let me read a little of that to you. So send I you, by grace, made strong to triumph over host of hell, over darkness, death, and sin, my name to bear and in that name to conquer, so send I you my victory to win, so send I you to take to souls in bondage the word of truth that sets the captive free, to break the bonds of sin, to lost death's fetters, so send I you to bring the lost to me. So send I you my strength to know in weakness, my joy and grief, my perfect peace and pain, to prove my power, my grace, my promised presence. So send I you eternal fruit to gain. She made that in the exact same tomb, measure meter, all that kind of stuff, so they could pop them in between and just kind of, Cheer that bad boy up a little bit so that when a missionary's going out, it's not just going out to, oh, look at this yucky thing I'm doing, like some sort of aesthetic trip I'm on, right? But I'm going out. Yeah, it's going to be tough. And yeah, I may have to suffer some, but I don't do it alone. I don't stand alone. I have a mighty God on my side. It's going to be awesome, even in suffering. It's going to be joy, even in persecution, knowing that my reward in heaven is great, right? So, now that's balance, folks. And we got to be careful there. On the charismania side, you've got nothing but, ha oh, joy, the bounce, 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 bounce. And on, if we're not careful, the conservative side, we're all about the gloom and doom, right? When we serve a God who takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. There is a valley of the shadow of death, but he takes us through it. He takes us through the fiery furnace. He takes us through the cross. For the joy set before him, Christ endured, and we're to follow in his steps. See what I'm saying? This is beautiful. It makes the trials a lot easier to bear. I'll give you that. And it makes the joy sincere and not just syrupy sentimentalism. You see, that's in the essence of that is that as you base your life on God, his word, and Christ, there's a reality that becomes apparent in your daily living, all right? In him... Paul writes, you've been made complete. There's a reality to that. We're complete. We don't need to wander around like lost puppies when everything we need is found in Christ. And, you know, sometimes we do that, right? And why is that? And I submit to you that part of the reason why that is, is it really 4.30? You guys, this happened to me once before. I went on for two hours, I'll be honest with you. I should, I should wrap it up if it's 4.30. Um The reason we do that is we fail to appropriate the reality of who we are in Christ, to see it play out in our life. And we we don't have the faith to put it into practice. We don't have the discipline to learn more about him so that we are able to encounter these things by the examples that he's put before us and the precepts that he's laid on paper for us and preserved. Instead, even believers, true believers, sometimes wander around just kind of lost in the middle of the Christian walk because not knowing they had everything they needed. William Randolph Hearst, he was an avid art collector, right? I've been to Hearst Castle, you know, up on the Central Coast, a massive, amazing place. But because he was this big art collector, he was always sending, he had guys who worked for him. All they did was go and find art for him. Go find me some new art. I'm looking for this one. Go find it. Wherever it is on planet Earth, you go find it. So he'd send these guys around looking for stuff. He had one in particular he was looking for. He'd seen it at one time and he wanted it. He says, go find this thing. Here's what it is. And they crisscrossed over the entire globe, here and there, hunting, asking questions, trying to find this thing. And after months of searching, they finally found it. And you know where they found it? In one of his own warehouses. He'd seen it when he got it. He, he had it all along. You see, the, you see the issue, right? Bringing it forward to Christianity. They had it all along. The, we as Christians have no need to search in the ways of man and of the world, but in Christ, because we have it all along. Alan, Alexander McLaren put it this way. Though all the earth were cover, covered with helpers and lovers of my soul, in other words, people who love me and they're always trying to do my, help me out, as, as the sand by the seashore innumerable, if I had that number of people doing that, and all the heavens were sown with faces of angels who cared for me, thick as the stars of the Milky Way, all could not do for me what I need. Yea, though all these were gathered into one mighty and loving creature, even he were no sufficient stay for one soul of man it wouldn't be able to help me we need more than creature help we need the whole fullness of the Godhead to draw from it is there McLaren writes in Christ for each of us whosoever will let him draw freely why should we leave the fountains of living waters to hew out for ourselves with infinite pains broken cisterns that can hold no water all we need is Christ let us lift up our eyes from the low earth and all the creatures and behold no man anymore as Lord and help, helper except Jesus only that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's pretty good, huh? Makes sense. We should share that with others, by the way, right? We should share with others truth. We, we don't need to... Uh, trick people with the gospel you know what i mean like buying a used car let I me mean, tell you just features and benefits so you come to christ and your marriage is going to be fixed your kids are going to be perfect your job's going to get better you're going to have more money that's the way some people sell christianity even good evangelicals sell it like this come to jesus and everything's going to be better asterisk right it's like the guy on the radio does not apply to you. You know the guy on the, at the end of the car commercials? Or medicine commercials? That's the way we sell Christianity. Like, like, it's kind of like we got to trick them into it. No. See, man is a sinner. And man is lost. It's not just them, folks. It's us, right apart from Christ. We understand that. We speak from the voice of experience, having been a lost wanderer. Now we can go to them with the one thing, it can truly help their situation and speak of it clearly and openly and help them to understand that there's a cost. It's not just accept Jesus Christ into your heart as Savior, right? And everything happens, don't anybody ever tell you, even though you don't love Jesus, even though you don't care about the Word of God, even though you never go to church again, that anything's wrong because it's not, right? No, we, we understand there's a cost to this. I lay down my life, I surrender all, right? And with that, he may have a call in my life. I heard somebody one time tell me, he said, yeah, I really, this really just speaks to my heart. But you know what? I'm afraid he's going to call me into missions in Africa or someplace. I'm like, so what? Wouldn't you rather be in Africa doing what he wants you to do than here fighting against him? I can tell you, I've stayed, I stayed in the, remember Compact Computer a long time ago? I don't think they're still around. I stayed in the guy's house one time. He, they were out of town. They said, we were about to go to seminary. He said, just come live in our house. It's the worst thing you can do to a seminary student because it's absolutely, it's like, I don't know, 15,000 square feet and he's got Mercedeses and Jags and all this kind of stuff. And he said, just use any of the cars you want. You know, you push a button and things come out of the wall and we were staying there. It was like, now I'm going to go to seminary, right? <laughs> the apartment in Valencia, or Candy Country, right? But I've been in those kind of places And I've been in the homes of some of the rich and famous here in L.A. with my job and all that kind of stuff that I did in seminary and here now. And I've seen the same kind of unhappinesses that are in the poor places and the hard places. And I've been in some of the roughest places on earth. I mean, I've been in some dumpy places in Siberia with the most joyous, vibrant believers that you could ever see. What's the point? The point is, the world's philosophy says, hey, you get your fulfillment through a lot of little things you got to add on. And God's philosophy is, hey, in Christ, all the fullness. In Christ, you're made complete. So, renew your mind about the way we think. And give your heart over to God full bore. And if He wants you to go to Africa, you know what? Go to Africa. It's going to be awesome. And hard. Just follow him. The day's short. I mean, you guys are a lot younger than me, most of you. But you guys are going to be dead before long, too. Right? If you lived to 120, it's only, for the youngest in here, probably, you know, 114 years, right? That'll go by like that. Why not be spent and expend yourself in loving the Lord God Almighty and spending your life preparing for that eternity? On occasion, I've had a few believers tell me, you know, the professing believers tell me, you know, sometimes when I think about heaven, I think how boring it's going to be. You know, we're just going to be praising Jesus and stuff. And you know, with their worldview, that may be true. You ask almost anybody on the street, would you rather go to heaven or hell? And they almost to a person will say heaven. Occasionally you'll have some smart aleck that says hell, that's where all my friends are or something, but almost always heaven. And the question is, why would you want to be in a place that doesn't have the values that you have? I mean, you wouldn't enjoy that at all, in a sense. So... What's happening is, as you've encountered Christ, he begins that sanctification process. He's changing you more and more. Where worship is no longer boring, it's exciting. Where being on the word of God is no longer a chore, but it's something you desire to do. Where being with other believers is a joy, right? And he's molding and shaping us to where, when we're finally translated or dying and are in heaven, either way, you know, at the end of it, it's like, man, this is precious. I've been preparing for this my whole life. Why not live your life in the fullness of Jesus Christ? Abandoning worldly philosophies and their futilities and clinging to the vitality of Christianity, God, the Bible, and Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank for this time together this morning. We thank for your truth. It is easy for each of us to be uh, swayed here and there by uh, worldviews that are around us or situations we encounter and circumstances that that rattle us. But, Father, we thank you for your word that brings us back and opens our eyes to truth. And, Lord, I pray this morning our eyes would clearly clearly understand that we find our foundation of truth only in Jesus Christ and the word of God. And, Lord, may we cling to that and live to that end, and may your word have its perfect work in our lives so that we may be more and more Christ-like until the day that you call us home. In Christ's name.